This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 451 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Peter Conroy. Now, Peter is a firefighter in Dublin, Ireland. He is also a surfer, lifeguard, and waterman. So we discuss a host of topics from Dublin specifically being a fire and EMS department for over 100 years to surfing on the Irish coast, water rescues, helmet selection, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, literally, pieces from Ireland today. The audience is global. So the more you help share these incredible men and women's stories, the more people on planet Earth we can help. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Peter Conroy. Enjoy. Pete, I want to start by saying thank you so much. Thank you to Jason for connecting us. But uh, yeah, thank you for taking the time off shift in your van to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No problem. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to this. And this is the second yeah. interview I've done from a van, by the way. Jason Ramos, a smoke oh, yeah. jumper, does the same thing as you. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my comfy van, the heat, it's about a 24 degrees in the van now and it's about two degrees outside the van so yeah it's nice and comfy beautiful ready for a, yeah it's been a long day i've been up since five o'clock driving up so dro drove up at five o'clock got for eight start work at half eight nine and then finished at six so i'm not back on till tomorrow at uh, six o'clock tomorrow night i'm on double nights then tomorrow night and the next night so yeah Gotcha. All right. Well, I want to explore you know, the shifts that you do when we when we get into the conversation. Yeah. Where, for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you right now? So you're finding me now at the moment on the east coast of Ireland in a, a little city called Dublin. Um, yeah, um, in the, fire, the back of a fire station uh, in Fisborough. 
So we have 13 fire stations in Dublin and I'm at the back of one of them. So that's where I am at the moment. Beautiful. Well, firstly, I'm excited. We talked before. I Being British, being from Bath, which is like right across the water from you, I've never made yeah. it over to Ireland. So when we go back, I want to make sure I do. But now I actually, you know, have another dual yeah, purpose to come. Yeah, yeah come yeah. say hello and check out the station. And, you know, maybe when you're off shift, share a beer or something. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. All right. Well, then I like to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born. And then tell me about your, your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, so I grew up on the west coast of Ireland in a town called Ennis in County Clare. Um, I was born in the nearest hospital, which was Limerick. Um, I've grown up all my life in Clare. My parents, my dad was a computer engineer, uh, worked for IBM, Dell, all that kind of stuff. And about 30 years ago, they opened a computer shop in Ennis and my mom worked from there as well with my dad working full time in the computer industry. Um, I have one older brother, Gordon. I have two sisters, Elizabeth and Gillian. Gillian uh, uh, is a receptionist in a hotel in Doolin, which is on the West Coast. Um, my sister Elizabeth is a special needs teacher and my brother is another computer nerd geek working for Dell inside Limerick. <laughs> so joined the father and that kind of sense. And I was the blackfish and I went down the fire brigade. Well, it started as a lifeguard, worked my way and went and got a degree in disaster management and engineering in disaster management in Coventry and then came back and joined the fire brigade in 2004 and never looked back ever since. So Beautiful. So did you have any first responders in your family at all? Extended family even? No. So my sister kind of went down my line because she because we all were competitive swimmers growing up. So from the age of four or five, we were thrown into the swimming pool and we were swimmers, 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 competitive. And my sister and myself, Gillian and myself kind of went down the lifeguarding route out of that. And we both lifeguarded on the beaches. So I started lifeguarding at 17 on one of the local beaches and kind of continued that every summer till about, oh, geez, I was still in the fire brigade doing summers when I could um uh yeah and loved it and would be still doing it now if I could but the way the council kind of worked it now is you couldn't cover without paying tax on it so it was it was kind of a uh, I, I couldn't do it anymore but I do still uh teach the lifeguarding and um all the refreshers for the beach lifeguards so yeah still kind of involved in that my sister kind of went away from it then when you when you get to a certain age you kind of grow up out grow out of it because it's not a a full-time job in ireland it's only three months of the year it's actually only two months of the year and then weekends in one of the months so it's not really full-time but it's a great summer job for kids and stuff like that so yeah because that's beautiful well with you swimming was that the, when you were doing the competitive swim and the training was that in pools yeah, in pools only. Yeah, yeah. So pools only. And then you kind of went out of that. And during the summer, then you were lifeguarding. And lifeguarding is where I kind of picked up my surf and beloved bug for surfing. So we were lifeguarding on one of my favorite beaches, Spanish Point Beach. And it kind of takes the brunt of the north swells and and very, and very it gets very, very big. So it was always competitive to like get the rescue board out the back and as big as we could get. And I kind of picked up surfing. Then on, on our lunch breaks, you'd, you'd see the lads surfing and some of my good friends, Oshin, and we were all lifeguarding together. Pat Finn, Oshin McGrath, and all those kind of boys were, we were there. And uh, I bought a board off one of my friends and just started surfing. But 
Like it's like everything, like surfing, you want to be look cool. So you buy the short board and I did that at the start and kind of stunted my growth of surfing. So I was pretty shit for years because <laughs> I bought a short board to learn on instead of a long board to lo- learn on. So it was kind of dove in at the, the deep end and uh, learned the hard way. But uh kind of stood for me in the end, but I would have liked to have learned faster. But so that's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, for people listening, I'm, I'm sitting here in Florida now, so obviously our beaches are completely different than, you know, Ireland and, and mainland Britain. But I spent, you know, every summer going to a place called Milford-on-Sea, which was actually the south coast of England. Um, the beaches were shingle, so it was all sharp flint and pebbles. Um, I think the, the sea was probably minus four million or something close to that. Um, so, you know, to tell people, you know, what, what does the ocean look like through the seasons in Ireland? So seasons in Ireland are pretty different. So in, um, so let me put it during the summer. So, so water temperatures in Ireland, uh, coastal wise, they don't drop below six, seven degrees. So it averages six, seven degrees during the winter at, at, at the lowest now I'm talking up north or on the east coast because um, we have the North Atlantic Drift that kind of keeps our temperature up about eight or nine on the west coast. Um, and then in the summertime, it might go up to 17, 18 if we're lucky, if we're very, very lucky in a sunny summer. Um, so it's very cold. But like it, it isn't a cold. It, it, it's not the, the it's not the water temperature that gets you. It's the wind chill that really, really affects you here because there's a lot of moisture in the in the air. So. Even in the summertime, you'll be feeling warm in the water and you come out and then that, that wind will just knock, cut straight through you, drop your body temperature straight out of you. Um, so our winter kind of starts, it, it's this is the coldest time of the year. Now, March, April would be the coldest time of the year. And then it starts to get warmer all the way till August, September would be the warmest time in the water. Um, our lifeguarding season kicks off now in weekends in June and then full time July and August would be the, the lifeguarding season over here. Um, and yeah, our coastal area is very, very rocky. Rocks, reef, and then the odd beach, long sandy beach in between cliffs and, and, and reefs, basically. That we're, we, that's what we are, we're stuck with. On the, we have uh, the cliffs of Moher are in Clare, and they'd be the second highest cliffs in Europe. Um vertical cliffs in Europe um, averaging six, seven hundred feet in, in height. So yeah, it's a very touristy attraction area around here. So yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country. And what yeah. about what about the surf? What is it comparable to? Because you think of the UK, obviously we think of the temperatures and Jason was talking about that with the you know the the temperature being the barrier to entry. But I, I worked with a girl years ago who was um, she she was on a summer camp so she was a youth surfing champion in scotland um so when when people listening you know think of the the us or or hawaii what kind of surf do you guys have so do do many surfers listen to the podcast yeah actually funny yeah. enough especially my old department was california on the coast there southern california there's actually yeah, a lot no of surfers surf. yeah there's no surf in ireland so yeah it's pretty flat all <laughs> it's shit don't come here <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I hate to say it, but yeah, we do have some of the best surf in the world, hands down. Um, 
I've been to Hawaii just on holidays, but I didn't do much surfing. I've been to France, Portugal. Um, I, I know a lot of surfers around the world, and every time they come to Ireland, they're just blown away by what we have. But it's very particular. It's it, it's like all our wives. Like you just have to treat it perfectly for it to to fruition. Do you know what I mean? It's like. Uh, you have to live in Ireland for a few months to score Ireland very well. You can't just come over. Like if you go to Hawaii, you're nearly guaranteed surf for your holiday. Or if you go to France, the south of France, you're going to score. Um, you come to Ireland, you could go three weeks with a, without looking at a wave. It could be flat. Um, or it could be the opposite. It could be 30 foot onshore wind blowing all the time and you don't get in the water because it's too cold and wet and the wind is blowing from the wrong direction but saying that you could come for two weeks and you could score the best surf of your life and you go right and come back next year and not score again so it is hit and miss but best times to surf in ireland are september october when the 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 waves start getting better and the wind and and uh, the weather is actually quite a kind of good and then march april as well you'll still have the the good weather settling in um, with offshores um, and a bit of swell still around. So once we go into April, May, June, you're looking at longboard fun waves and then the summertime again, like longboarding waves. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, when you were at school before you you know, found your way into lifeguarding, was that something you'd always thought of doing career-wise or did you have something else in mind? Oh, I was one of those children with ADHD and uh, you go into the career guidance teacher and you say, oh, I want to, I want to teach people uh, outdoor activities and they'd be, back then they'd be like, no, don't be silly. They don't, that, that, you'll never make a career out of that. Why don't you become an engineer or a, a computer person like your father? And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Um, I never thought, I'd, like, as I said, I was in school and I was lifeguarding in my final year and I did think about it about doing, going down the lines of lifeguarding, but there was no career in it in Ireland at all. Um, and there still isn't, unless you're working in a pool. And I did work in the pool full-time for a while as well, but it, it just become monotonous working in a pool, looking at flat water continuously. Um, but then when I came out of school, I, I one of my neighbor actually was doing a, the course in Coventry and I had started, I'd gone down the, the sheep line of basically I'll go and do communications and computers in the local college. And I was doing that for the first year. And my neighbor was on to me, Brian, and uh, he was telling me that he was doing the course International Disasters Engineering and Management over in Coventry. And he was just describing my perfect college life. It was like going off into the Welsh mountains, uh, surviving in caves, engineering in disasters, um, managing uh, refugee camps and stuff like that. So I was like, right, I'm ending my college in Limerick and I'm going to Coventry to do that. So a phone call later, I was accepted and yeah, I went over there and never looked back. But uh, yeah, definitely in college, I was, uh, it was never one of those, I was never a bright student, let's just say. Like, I definitely had dyslexia as well. So learning was a bit weird. As I said, in Ireland, we, we, we do six years of learning the Irish language. And when we finished, like, there's very little people that can speak Irish in Ireland fluently, let's just say. So, yeah, it was, it was just one of those things that 
if you got the right teacher, you were laughing, but if you got the wrong teacher, you're learning nothing. So yeah, it was an interesting few years in, in, in school to transition to college over in England. So yeah. Now, what about Gaelic? So, you know, have they been able to sustain that? Because, I mean, I can see how that would be a threat as, you know, English speaking becomes more and more predominant and the same in, in Wales too. So how are they able to sustain that? It's always there and it is taught in schools now. But like, as I said, the learning ability of each person is different now and they're beginning to recognize that. Some people are good at learning languages or maths or or uh, engineering technical graphics it's it's all down to the person um and they are like there is schools that are completely dedicated to irish they're called Gwale schools so you go and you learn everything through irish and i would love my kids to go to a Gwale school and learn but as i said i'm not an irish speaker my wife is i she'll claim she is but i, I don't think she is that good at it um, <laughs> but uh there are certain uh provinces in ireland that still speak pure Irish. Like if there's three islands off the west coast of Clare that just speak Irish. If you go out there, everyone speaks Irish. Um, they do speak English as well, but and then so certain along the west coast of Ireland, especially, it's there. There is provinces, counties that uh, Connemara that speak fluent Irish, and that's what you you go there. You'd be sent there during the summer to learn Irish or get better at Irish, and you could only speak Irish there. Um, but the rest of Ireland is colonized by the English and we all speak English now. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important that we, let's say we, that, that every culture maintains that because even, a, a oh, lot of, yeah, well, I mean, even like you think about, um, the simple things like understanding where our food comes from, understanding how to cook. We've got a generation, especially here, that, you know, not every household, but a lot of them, you know, they've been relying on the restaurants and the fast food. And that's an entire generation now that doesn't know how to, how to cook. Yeah, how to yeah. find food, how to cook. I mean, all those things. So whether it's language, whether it's that, whether it's, you know, how to fix a car, blacksmithing, whatever it is, these are things that our ancestors have spent, you know, millennia developing. And if we're not careful, this technological age will actually eliminate some of that information being passed on. Oh, 100%, 100%. Like blacksmithing in Ireland. It's the same around the world. Like Trades are dying out very quickly um, and languages and history. They're not, it's not being written down now. But like I suppose it's stored on the web or whatever. But if we get a, a total blackout of all our comms, that's all a lot of history gone straight up. It's not being written down in, hard, in a hard, hard copy. So as a... It's an interesting one to to delve into, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't. As I said, I listened to a, a, another podcast called the Blind Boy Podcast. Have you ever heard of it? Um, I haven't, but I'll write it down. Oh man! Oh, if you want to know Irish and all about this, is a, a guy. He's from the Rubber Bandits. He's um, it, which was a band that had a, a, a very famous song called uh, "The Horse Outside." But he he's a, a writer and he's a he has a podcast, and I've been listening to. It religiously for the last two years three years since he started it and he uh he talks a lot about psychology as well because he did that in college as well but uh he wears a bag over his head so people don't know who he is um, <laughs> not a plastic one just, i hope it is a plastic bag yeah with holes cut out in it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it he said he he, I, he he suffered very a lot from anxiety when he was younger so he said he wore the bag because 
he didn't want to be identified for who he was. And he st- you, he'd still walk, he could, like I've listened to him religiously, he could walk past me tomorrow, I wouldn't have a clue who he was. And that's what he wants. And he's he's like on all the national TV, he does, uh, he's worked for the BBC doing um, documentaries and everything. And nobody knows who he is. Like he's kept his face a secret. That's And amazing. it's amazing. But his podcast, start from the beginning, some of his short stories are just amazing, but he goes into the Irish culture as well and about uh, Irish culture, our history, about the, like the three monkeys of Ireland. Oh, it's just amazing. Like if you want to listen to a good, good podcast, but it's just like he'll start off a rant and it just goes on for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'm always looking for, you know, diverse guests as well. So I have to I have to listen to that. And I love that whole concept um, you know, when you see that, whether it's Dead Mouse, the DJ, or whether it's Sia, the singer, you know, and then they basically want their, whether it's their writing, their music, whatever it is, to speak for them in this this generation that we do judge people on how they look. Yeah, exactly, and a hundred percent. Like even just listening to him and what he suffered and from anxiety and, and depression and all that, and, and like a lot of stuff he talked about, I was like, oh, geez, oh, yeah, I went through a little bit of that and how I dealt with it and how other people, and even his interviews with other people, he just treats them like normal human beings. He's like, he'd take to really famous people and they'll just, and it's just the way he talks to them. It's just refreshing compared to other interviews. Um, yeah, it's it's great. You should definitely listen. Absolutely. Definitely, you will laugh so hard as well stuff comes out with. <laughs> well we need yeah. that because you know some of the topics that we we discuss here you know i mean whether it's trying to fix things in the fire service whether it's mental health you know it's it's good to have some uh some comic relief to it as well yeah definitely definitely yeah all right well with just touching on the lifeguarding for a moment um because this is something that you know that we talked about the other day in the fire service too what were the fitness standards and and you know um skill standards that you were held to to test for that position Oh, so yeah, it's something I don't agree with anymore, but like never did. Um, so you could become a beach lifeguard and never swim in the sea. That's still going on. You can still do all this um, or never deal with waves. So when I, <laughs> they, when I was training lifeguards to become beach lifeguards, I'd, I'd bring them to the biggest rip I could find on a big day, I get my good friends, my good lifeguards that I know and put them in the water as safety, as backup. And I'd, I'd send these guys out and it doesn't matter what, if you were a pool swimmer or whatever, you could see the mentality switch from, I know what I'm doing. I'm a good swimmer to, I have a clue what the sea does. I don't understand what the sea is doing until I'm inside, inside in the, in the rip, in the ocean moving with it so fast that I can't swim out of it. And that's what I kind of, I was trying to push, but like agencies, they don't like that. They don't like you going out. They'll say risking people's lives, but it's like, it's risk assessed. You're looking at everything, making sure that it's covered and it was covered, but they were like, oh no, you have to do it in a certain bay. I was like, well, that bay doesn't have any waves. It doesn't have any rips. How am I supposed to, how are they supposed to experience this? And they're like, oh, well, you just have to teach them and and teach them theoretically, not practically. I was like, okay, grand. So, <laughs> yeah. So you would notice a massive difference between sea swimmers and pool swimmers. But even to the, today now, even the beach lifeguard test, 
to get your job is done in a pool. See, so, it's crazy because I, I lifeguarded in, in England, started off in, you know, regular, um, you know, sports center pool and then went to, have you heard of center parks? It's like a holiday yeah, village. So that, <laughs> so we, it was, it was, you know, a better place to, to guard. You actually would make rescues a lot, but you know, they had rapids, they had the wave pool, they had flumes, they had all this stuff. But, you know, and then I, I, lifeguard in the states i'd come over every summer and work on summer camps so there was open water cert and i had my wsi all those combined i don't i never ever felt like i would have been qualified or well trained for the beach and that's you know multiple you know international certificates so being you know someone who loves the ocean and you know feels strong in a a recreational setting on the beach the 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 danger of that especially when you're talking about jason in, in somewhere like hawaii with the crazy rips that they get there as well um you know it's a it's a completely different animal so you can see how that complacency feeds into a lot of the the regular people that visit the beaches getting in trouble oh 100 100 as i said when i um when i was lifeguard in spanish point the reason i got kind of got into big wave surfing and big wave jet ski operations is because when it got big i was me and the friends were all like, right, let's get out the back. Let's see what we can do. And it's only through repetition that you get better. As I said, when I'm talking to surfers or groms, it's like, oh, how do we get surf big waves? I said, you go out when you when you feel uncomfortable out there and you get comfortable, that's when you step up. So you go out and you get used to four to six foot. Then you go out and get used to six to eight foot. Then you get used to eight to 10 foot and you continue like that. Um, and that's what I did for years. And then when I went to Hawaii, it's quite interesting because I used to go down to shoot our lo local slabs or surf our local slabs. And when I went to Hawaii, I was staying with Anthony Walsh over there. He's a go. You've probably seen all his GoPro footage. Really good friend, um, but a, a sound lad as well. And we went to a beach. I think it's what not Waikiki. One of these beaches where Clark Little shoots his shore dump waves. Have you ever seen them? Um, I can't say I have no. Yeah, Clark Little, he, he he specializes in shore dumpy waves. I guarantee you, you've seen him with a big wall of water is just about to land and he's kind of standing up and it's waist deep water, not even waist deep water. And the, and the barrel is going over him onto the beach. So we went down to that beach and uh, Anthony was there and we only had one pair of fins between us. And he was like, oh, sure, we'll have one each. And I was like, OK, grand. And he's like, Peter, do you think you're able for this? Like, it's a bit different to Ireland. I was like, it's water. It's moving. I was like, I think I'd be able to. And it was when I was in there, I was like, it was completely like Riley's, like the wave sucks you up and it'll drag you back up the beach. And I've never laughed and had so much fun in my life. And he's just looking at me going, you're freaking crazy. <laughs> um, but it was just one of those kind of like, it was only because I learned, because I wanted to learn in Ireland. But I can see how any Irish person goes over there and doesn't know about sea surges or doesn't can't read the set waves coming in how they can be easily easily caught off guard and just t swept off their feet and taken out to sea um i was over in nazare uh last year um for one of the big big swells and i remember running daniel kuto was out uh, surfing and he radioed me to come go onto the beach to be collected and i ran down onto the beach and i had my my inflatable vest or my impact vest on of my wetsuit and I was standing on the beach and the sea surges in Nazare I have never seen anything like it 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 go like from maybe two three hundred meters out the water was would surge up the beach up over the sandbar and take anything that was standing there back out to sea 
and I'm standing there going, I'm waiting for Danilo to come in. So I, I'm kind of standing nowhere, like way away from the water's edge because I didn't want to be just picked up and brought out to sea. Um, and there'd be people coming up talking to me and I'd be literally talking to them and say, I, 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 I need you to go go up back there. And they're looking at you going, what do you mean? It's like, I need you to go now. And then you, they'd be like, no. It's like looking at you, like, what are you talking about? The water's way out. And I'm like, go now, please, please run, run. And literally they would be swept up and over the sandbar even after me telling them to run away and it's just like i can it's just so easy to see how easy it can happen especially in portugal in in, in big surges like that and i and it is an education thing it's like people think the sea is is nice and it is 99% of the time but that one time it will take your take you off your feet and take you out and that's it good night so yeah it is a a learning curve that needs to be learned in school, if you ask me. School, educate in first aid and life-saving and swimming abilities all need to be on the curriculum in school. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, I talked to Jason about that, um, you know, with with the program that he has, uh, Never Off Duty. You know, why would we not teach every student how to do CPR, how to put on a tourniquet, how to, you know save someone from choking and i think you know the swimming is the other thing in in america you know it's the sheepdog mentality is i do jujitsu and you know i own a firearm and i know how to use it and which is you know again other elements you might save a life who knows but if you can't swim and you get that kid that falls you know, out of a boat whatever it is in a lake that kid's going to drown because you never took the time to become a sheepdog in that area too. So yeah, I mean, self-survival obviously is one part, but also, you know, if you're a firefighter and you can't swim, then you're missing a big, big piece of your uh, your rescue ability too. Oh, 100%. And then it's just basic education as well, because when they, like, there's 400,000 people a year dying from drowning. And they, when they went down the whole line of uh, CPR only in the community, it was great, but CPR for drowning is no use. You have to realize that it's not a cardiac problem, it's a respiratory problem you're dealing with. And if you do pull someone out of the water, you need to be giving that person breaths first, not jumping on their chest. By you jumping on their chest, actually, you probably put them into arrhythmia or you probably kill them because the body isn't, there's nothing wrong with the heart. It's, it's there, there's no oxygen in their blood that is causing the heart to stop. So if you put oxygen in the blood, your heart is probably beating away slowly. And by adding that fuel, which is oxygen, you'll save their lives pretty simply. So identifying respiratory problems over cardiac problems, and it's quite simple. Chokings, drownings, suffocation, children, that's all respiratory that leads to cardiac. So it's kind of just basic education that'll save people's lives down the long run. Um, but with COVID, now that's put an awful stunt in it as well because of COVID, mouth-to-mouth, all that kind of stuff is gone, using BVMs. And as you, you probably know, like using BVM, it's a skill in itself. And by over here, they've just told the lifeguards, turned around and said, yeah, you can use BVMs with very minimal training. And I'm like going, what are you doing? I said, BVMs, that's, it's, a, it's a pretty hard skill to learn and to maintain a skill at it. But they're telling him, oh, no, work away um, without learning how to use it properly. It's madness. Madness. Yeah, absolutely. And they're only really 
much more effective, like you said, if they're used properly and with supplemental oxygen. Otherwise, you may as well just be blowing into a mask. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, it's one of these, it's an Irish thing. Like, I'm not going to worry about it until it happens to somebody I, I love. So I'm not going to worry about it. Do you understand? Yeah, no, exactly. And it's funny. I just had um, a guy called Lawrence Gonzalez who wrote a book called Deep Survival on the show. And what he talks about is there is a uh, there is that you know whole mentality, and it has happened to me even in my last apartment. Well, it's never happened before, so we're fine. Which I is to me is you know statistics completely backwards. Like every time it doesn't happen, you're more likely to be happen. The Irish attitude, I call it. I was like, ah, sure, we'll worry about it when it happens. And I'm like, yeah, well, we can just do simple one or two steps to make sure that if it happens, we're trained. It's like, oh, no, 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 sure. And and the thing is, a lot of the lifeguards here being trained, they're being trained by people that have never used a BVM and they don't understand the the specifications of a BVM. Um, and they'll never have to use it. But as I said, like putting a defib on a beach and oxygen, you're nearly guaranteed your lifeguard is going to do everything in their power to save that person's life. If you give them a BVM and you don't train them properly, they could lead to that person's death without them knowing it. Absolutely. So like overinflating the BVM, barotrauma, it's, it, it's just kind of, it baffles me that, as I said, you could cause that lifeguard a, a lifetime of guilt by them coming out afterwards and, and trying to identify, oh, what, what did I do wrong? What, did, did I do the BVM properly? Because I couldn't get a seal properly. And every time I blew, it went into his stomach and then he vomited and then he died. Instead of training them properly to identify how to do it properly or not getting to use it at all until they've gone off and done the proper courses and used it properly. Like, like I'm 100% with the defibs. Like you can't kill someone with a defib. It's, it's impossible. You put the pads on, it says shock or don't shock. Right, there you go. But with, with a BVM, like, you can do so much damage, especially with a two-person. As I said, as you know, like, 1,500 milliliters in a BVM, the human lungs only need 400, 400 to 500. So you're putting three times the amount. If you squeeze that bag too powerfully, you're going to overinflate the lungs, and you know where it's going then, straight into the stomach. And then a drowning victim, you know what happens then. Up comes everything in the stomach. So they're going to aspirate, going to cause more trouble for you down the line. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's one of those, like, if you teach this to people and they understand it, 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 it changes the whole outcome of, of a drowning situation. So, yeah. Well, what's interesting is I'm sure people listening now, especially if they're familiar with, you know, the, the Irish and UK fire service, are probably thinking, wow, this uh, firefighter has a pretty good grasp of paramedicine. <laughs> and what was fascinating to me when we talked is that where you work, Dublin, is a very different system than the surrounding areas. So walk me through your journey into the fire service and then just kind of tell us which areas a Dublin firefighter responds to versus outside of Dublin. Okay, so so in Dublin, I I joined in two thousand and four, and when I joined, I like my dad kind of slapped me over the back of the head and said, "Get a real job," and I was like, oh, "Okay." I applied for the fire brigade. I got in. It was only when I got in I realized that every firefighter is trained as a paramedic as well within their crew training, because uh, Dublin Fire Brigade runs an EMS service. Um, so every fire station has a an ambulance in it. 
So it turns out from the fire station and every firefighter rotates onto that ambulance on a not a day or night rota. Um, it's very good in a way that the f- ambulance service is 24-7. It never stops. There's no lunch breaks. There's nothing like that. If an ambulance crew need dinner, they pull through the station. Two guys jump up onto that fi- uh, onto that ambulance and then the ambulance crew ju- start having their dinner. But they're also covering the fire engines in the station. So they might get their dinner or they might get turned out, but that's the way it goes. But the ambulances are always manned 24 7, 365 days a year. Um, um, so, yeah, in training, we did um, BA training, HASCAM, all the usual fire service stuff and paramedics so we came on to station then so each station in dublin is kind of specialized so my station in fisborough we have a water tanker we've two pumps we've an emergency tender basically that has all the rescue heavy rescue equipment on it as well um we specialize in swift water rescue and highline rescue in my station um and then you'll have other stations that deal with chemical tunnel rescue um, high platform uh, TL stations as well. So the stations aren't that far apart. If you can imagine, um, I'd say the nearest station to me is about two miles away, which is Tara Street. And then we all have our own kind of area that we take care of, but we are backed up by the other areas as well. So we've 13 stations in, in the city, uh, which is isn't really enough to for the population that we have here. Um, there will be, I'd say, in the next four or five years, another two or three stations opening up in the more urban areas that are built be built up over the years. Um, we also have we also deal with MER, which is a, a marine emergency rescue as well. So because we are a coastal city, that uh ships leave from ireland to england and carry people so if a ship goes on fire in the irish sea the coast guard we have a team tasked that we basically the the coast guard will pick up uh six to eight firefighters and drop them onto the ship that's on fire to fight the fire with the the crews that are on it as well so we're trained in mer as well which is great course um great sea survival course as well um um Highline cliff rescue, crane rescue, we do that as well. Um, so there's loads of courses, and we are, as you said, jack of what is it? Um, jack, jack of, of all, all trades. trades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting one, like because we have so many, and we can, like, I'm a driver in the job, I'm MER, I'm Highline, I'm boat rescue, I'm all that kind of stuff. But retraining it, that's where it comes a problem. Retraining. So you're kind of continuously fighting for retraining or or training days to get on the tower or even to get down in the water because they don't really take you off shift to go train it's like okay go down and train if you want but if you get called out you you have to go out you have to respond and i can see like a lot of the a lot of the reasoning because you especially with covid and undermanning at the moment you probably in the say you've seen it over there as well undermanning of of staffing levels with people retiring and they're not bringing in enough recruits um it's just a continuous circle um they'll say oh yeah we'll bring them in but they don't bring them in when they say they will the recruits and then 
like this year we're supposed to have back-to-back recruit classes but the last recruit class came out at Christmas and there's not one going in now till June I think or no May or June um, another class of 35 um, but sure there'll be 35 retiring this year I'd say or if not between this year and next year um, but the AMS the emergency service takes up a lot of time as well for retraining every two years. You have to go back and do your uh, CPD upskilling and stuff like that and learning about new drugs, drugs, new drugs going on, no, new protocols coming in place as well. Um, and especially with COVID, with all the new pro- procedures that we have to do on the back of the ambulance, if we have a COVID case, if we use, and this is another thing with COVID and the BVMs, if we use a BVM, you're supposed to be fully gowned, fully trained, how to don and doff the PPE and having viral filters on the BVMs as well. So it's all, <clears throat> it's all that kind of stuff that's kind of new to us within the year. Um, but it's, it keeps our job entertaining. Well, entertaining wouldn't be the word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Busy. <laughs> interesting. I find it entertaining, but interesting to some, entertaining to other. Because, as I said, like we're out on the tower a lot of, t- like we had a new batch of young lads get trained up in Highline Rescue. And it's good to have that kind of influx into the station. And they're like, oh, yeah, will we go up the, sta- up the tower and hang off the ropes and practice? And it's, it's good because I like that kind of stuff. And I'd always be the kind of the pusher to say, oh, who wants to go up and hang off a rope and ha- uh, practice rescuing? And uh, it's good. Like, and it is kind of it is self-motivation of doing things like that. It's like self-motivation of going to the gym and work. Like you don't have to. There's no fitness regime within work there's no uh medicals that you have to keep up up to date with or physical fitness i i know you and uh, jason were talking about that on the last podcast like here once you're in you're in and that's it so some people let themselves go some people continue progressing their own fitness and their education but uh it, it's it's all down to your self-worth basically yeah, well, it's it's so interesting that just Dublin has EMS, and and the rest of you know the UK and the rest of Ireland is is fire only, and you have a separate EMS service. Do you know how Dublin specifically seemed to uh, adopt what, what I assume was the American model? Uh, you'd be very surprised that we had it before you. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, um, that was kind of. I, I take that back. It was very arrogant of me to make that assumption. So, yeah, please so tell us. We've had it- We've had it from the start. We've had it. Um, it was always a fire and emergency service. Um, I can't remember. 1856 or something. Yeah, that predates um, us. <laughs> so, so it was always a kind of a, within Dublin Fire Brigade, we have always run an EMS service. Now that hasn't stopped over the, like in the last 10 years, the fight that's been going on with the, the city, like we're run by the, the city council. Um so they wanted to get rid of the uh, the EMS side of it, and they brought people over from England to to look at it and see was it feasible. And everybody walked away going, "No, it is." So like that's where every that's where all the services are going now down the EMS side of it because it makes us more efficient. Like Dublin is second in the world for cardiac saves, cardiac uh, arrest saves because of the EMS service. So we have, as I said, we have 12 ambulances in, in the whole city to, to deal with 1.6 million people. But remember, 
every fire truck carries a paramedic with full uh, trauma kit, full cardiac kit. Um, and and then in the recent years, in five or six, in the last five or six years, we've been, uh, the paramedics have been trained up to AP level, which would be more advanced paramedics, which would be like more drugs, more procedures that they're basically, they can do everything the hospital can do before we bring them in. So for cardiac saves, it's amazing. Like we can do everything on scene. And basically if we get them to hospital, the doctor will turn, did you do this, 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 this? Yes. And they'll call it straight away. Um, and we're like, we're, we're getting new drugs on, on, on given to us every year. Every time we're doing upskilling, it's new drugs, new, new life-saving procedures that, that the MS side is progressing rapidly. Um, but it's great to have, and it would be great. Like I know Cork, they do a cardiac response, uh, vehicle. So they will get sent out. I think it's EMTs out to cardiac arrests, but I don't think the rest of the, the, the fire brigades in Ireland do. Mm-hmm. Um, in England, I think in England, they do have an EMS side to it in certain stations. Okay, yeah, because I know the ones that I've spoken to so far, it's still, you know, the, the ambulance are in the stations, but they're still the ambulance versus yeah. the fire service. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm mixing it up with America where they do, say, a, mo- a couple of months on the, on the, no, no, in England as well. I know a few people over there, they do the ambulance for a while and then they'll go on to the fireside. It's kind of the same as here, but we rotate continuously, ups- continuously, on the ambulance so if you're in a one pump station you're like you're on the fire truck one day you're on the ambulance the next day and then you're on the fire truck tonight and then you'll rotate again (coughs) but i'm doing it on average maybe twice three times a month on the ambulance and then i'll be on the fire truck the rest of the time right you mentioned about the advanced paramedics and one one skill that we can't do at the moment that i think is has uh, I think it's you know been put on the table before as far as trauma is chest tubes. Can you do those? Chest tubes, yeah, uh, like uh, decompressing. Yeah, so not decompressing with a needle, um, but but actually cutting a hole oh, between the ribs and no, sticking a no, tube no, in no, there. No. Okay. No, they don't trust us that much. No, yeah. no, they can't. They can deco- they can needle decompress, no problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah but yeah. no, Coracotomies you're talking about, is it? Um, yeah, so you got needle, you got, you know, we can, we can crike, we can decompress, but the one area we can't do that seems to be one of the first go-tos when you get to the trauma let's bay. Stick your fingers in. Yeah. <laughs> keep, let's keep, let's keep it simple. Stick your fingers into the chest, yeah? And make a big hole. Exactly. And let the, <laughs> and let the blood, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 they can't do that. No. <laughs> so they're pretty limited in a lot of things they can do, but they have oversight down in Cork. Uh, they can ring up to say, give certain drugs that doctors can give. They can ring for oversight. Um, and a lot of things, so that's a, that's a good thing, right? Well, you mentioned yeah. um, the uh, you know COVID, and you know, I know that with what I've seen with the fire service riding ambulances in in the UK, is that has been a very recent thing. And again, I, I you're probably much more well versed than I am at the British fire service these days. But um, there's a big you know change for a lot of them where they have been put on the ambulances to cover you know the the. The shifts with this COVID epidemic or pandemic, excuse me. How have you guys done on Ireland specifically with those this whole thing? Where are you at now? Um, with COVID, it, it kind of the only change for us was that is wearing the PPE. 
we deal, um, as I said, we're dealing with, with like every in, uh, virus that comes in to the country. We kind of, we had protocols in place anyway, and we went full protocol. So if we're going to cardiac arrest, or if we at the moment now, if I can go to any case, no matter what it is, because we had such a big spike at Christmas, we have gone over the top. Every case I go to, I'm wearing double gloves, full gown, mask, and visor. And we're treating everything as a COVID because the person doesn't know if they've COVID. They could be asymptomatic or whatever. So we'll treat them. And if they have a temperature, if they've lost a smell, lost a taste or anything like that, it's all identified by us and passed on to the nurse. And then we're decontaminating the ambulance. So the massive difference in Ireland for the ambulance service all around, because I have a, a few friends in the in the HSE, which is the the um, the, the ambulance service in the rest of Ireland. So they, they're the same as us. Like we've slowed down massively in dealing with cases. So we're going, we're we're slowing down on the questions. We're making sure that. They identify everything that's wrong with them. We're cleaning down the ambulance after every case, uh, full disinfectant of it. Um, before uh, before that, it was like, especially in Dublin, like a lot of our cases would be, could be done within 30, 35 minutes from a response of six to eight minutes, <clears throat> if not even less, to the case and then to the hospital. Like you're no more than 15, 10, 15 minutes from a hospital in Dublin anyway. Um, and averaging 30, 35 minutes for per case a lot of the times to now an hour, an hour and 15, 20 minutes per case by slowing down, just making sure that you've gone through all your step-by-step procedures for cross-contamination, just for yourself, your family, and for your partner that's in the ambulance as well. So yeah, it, it has basically slowed us down to more thinking what you're touching. We're all wearing masks in the station. We're all uh, separated from uh, in our dorms and stuff like that and even we're in the TV room we're separated we're quite distance away from it and that's kind of because everybody's got the vaccine now well they've got the first dose all still waiting for the second dose at the moment so it's all kind of changing but I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was originally we're still going to wear masks on every case I'd say uh, visor yeah gowns I don't know so yeah, it's interesting <coughs> to see where it was to where it it, it inevitably ends up, ends up. Well, what about the station life itself? Because that's something that you know I'm I'm not on the rig anymore. You know, I'm not at the station. Um, so one of the things I hear is that, and you know, people report that that's you know one of the the hardest things for them is you know when you're running calls. I mean, amongst COVID, obviously you're still running some some nasty fires or wrecks or you know rescues. And yeah, the, the the kitchen table is where a lot of the bonding is done, a lot of the decompression is done, you know. And now you've got these crews that can't eat together. That, as you said, they're not even sitting close to each other in a TV room. The bunks are all separated. How has that been for? Um, yeah, because you, it is hard. Like you see people's nerves getting on edge if someone's not wearing a mask or someone coughs and it's a smoker cough or you see them looking at each other and um it is weird but like at the end of the day we're all as you know like we all look after each other if you do go to a, a very serious case 
we're still sitting having coffee with each other like we're sitting away at, like we all sit at different tables but you're still in the, the mess room talking um we don't let that get in the way of covid get in the way of any of that kind of team building or um we're still doing exercises we're all wearing masks at every case no matter what we go to the fire ground we're wearing the masks until we put a, a, the the full face masks on um the ba on sorry um but it's it's hard because when you put a mask on, you kind of lose a person's uh, emotions. When you're dealing with patients, they can't see if you're smiling or if anything like that. And especially at fire guns where people's tensions are high. All they're looking at is a helmet, your eyes and a mask now. So it's kind of hard to deal with public in, in a good way. It's kind of, you kind of deal with it more verbally than facial expression. If you get, get what I'm saying. Um, but when it comes to on station level, uh, it, it was kind of hard and stuff. You had like uh, top management telling you to do things, um, but not helping you out in the station, if you know what I mean. It's like they come down and they say, in a dorm that slept five, sorry lads, you're only allowed two in the dorms. Okay, where are we supposed to go? Oh, that's up to you. Make a decision. So there was lads sleeping in the gym, sleeping in the medical room on a, on a mattress. <clears throat> which is hard. Like I was lucky. I turned around straight away. I was like, can I stay in my van? So I parked the van up right beside the station so I can hear the bells going off. And like, it's hard. I'm living in my van anyway. But now I'm in, the, when I'm in work, when usually you could rest in the bed or well, the, before the bells go off or anything like that. So yeah, it's, it, it has changed, but it's kind of changed for the better. And it's identified good things and bad things about station life. So Yeah. <laughs> Now, what about um, overall in Ireland? Um, you know, are you starting to see yourselves coming out of it now? Oh God, <laughs> I don't want to say it. Um, so, <laughs> we have been in a heavy level five lockdown since January, and next week they're talking. So, five k from your house—that's all you're allowed to travel. You're only allowed to travel for essential work. Blah blah. Now, now a lot of Ireland didn't follow any of that rules and you can see it um face mask wearing all that kind of stuff um it's changing now <laughs> so we uh, i'll go back to like before christmas we were in level three level four um which was like 20 kilometers from your house wear masks you couldn't have more than three families together blah 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 and we were averaging between 50 and 100 cases per day up to christmas when we were kind of Everyone was, weren't sick with the restrictions and we were kind of doing what needed to be done. And then the government decided to say, right, up at Christmas, we're going to let you off for two weeks to go visit your family, but please social distance, wear your masks. Okay. Now the governing body, NEFID, they said, we don't advise this. It wouldn't, it's not the smartest thing to do, but the government went, no, we're going to open the shops. Everyone needs to do their Christmas shopping, blah, blah, blah. Literally, <laughs> I think it was just before Christmas, the numbers started coming in. Mm -hmm. At the worst, it is it was eight thousand a day, COVID. So it went from our grand to holy shit, what just happened? So literally, full level five lockdown in January, 
and everybody was like, oh my God, what are the numbers doing? And it just kept on spiking, kept on going up, kept on going up. Mm-hmm. Um, they're down to about four, 450, 500 a day now. Um, and it's, it's just, it's just pe- peaking at that. Like it hasn't gone below that within the month. So next week they're going to open up to, I think it's inter-county travel. So you can travel within your county or 20 kilometers from your house. Um, and we'll see what happens. I said, party, it's summertime. The weather's getting better. All you have to do is like, we had a sunny day last Sunday for Easter Sunday. And you could see everybody out enjoying having drinks by the river, by the lake. All the pubs are still closed. All the retail shops are still closed. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm not holding anything to heart about people not ruining it for themselves. But yeah, we'll see. Interesting. All right. Well, then getting away from, from COVID in the fire service again, um, you ended up becoming a waterman. So tell me about your journey from learning how to surf on a short <laughs> shortboard to ultimately yeah. becoming a good surfer and then, and then the jet ski work that you do now. Yeah. So I started surfing uh, when I was about 17. I was lifeguarding. Um, and then on the west coast of Ireland, a wave was discovered underneath the Cliss Moor, um, a big wave called the Aileens. And uh, I knew the guy started, uh, Dave Blount and, and John McCarthy and <clears throat> all these local kind of guys started surfing it. And they were using a jet ski kind of to get out there because it was the only way, instead of hiking down the 700 foot cliffs to get out there, they brought the ski around and they were towing it. And I was looking at this in awe going, oh, I knew I wasn't capable to surf that, that wave because what my ability wasn't that so I watched it for a few years and then uh, uh, one of the famous surfers Fergal Smith started living with me uh, renting a room off me up there when I was living I bought a house up the coast and Tom Lowe and I kind of got, got immersed into the heavy waves um, even swimming and just trying to paddle around but I bought a ski with two friends of mine Neil and Oshin and we we like, oh, we can see the lads doing, let's go out, let's do what we can <clears throat> to get better. But the way dynamics go, like Oshin was going off to the Air Corps, he was a helicopter pilot, Neil was working hard as well, and we just never had the time to all meet up and get out there. But I was living up the coast, so I kind of, any time was breaking, I'd go out with the lads and I'd drive the ski. So I was coming from a lifeguarding side of it, I was... I was well capable to get a, being out there in those kind of waves getting smashed. Um, but we didn't know anything about the jet skis and their capabilities. And it was on a big, big day out there that uh, I kind of convinced my friend Steve Thomas to tow me in. And literally I got caught in the middle of a set. I was on a wave and it died and left me in the impact zone of a 25 footer, like literally landed on my head, washed me into the inside. And it was just by the grace of God that I could, I was a very, very confident swimmer that I could swim my way out. Um, and we based, it took me 40, 45 minutes to get out, out from like, there was 700 foot cliffs in a horseshoe. You couldn't get out other side. And the only way out was to swim through this, these 20 foot white waters landing. Um, I got out eventually very traumatized from it we went back we sat down in the pub we said right how are we going to make ourselves better and we kind of set up the irish tow surf rescue club which was basically um to to learn about jet skis to learn about 
emergency procedures because I'd gone to college and I'd learned all about this stuff I was kind of just inputting what I could and what the lads would I knew a guy from England Glen Ovens he had I'd been over learning about Arantias and rescue boats over in Wales and he come down and showed us jet ski stuff and I was like oh that's very interesting and then two years later I was like oh I'd live that guy Glen a ring and see if he'd come over and teach us so Glenn came over and showed him, showed us everything he learned from um, uh, courses he'd done with K38. So it was kind of like handing me down learning. And Glenn was a surfer and wanted to learn toe surfing. And we'd been toe surfing for two years. So we kind of taught him to toe surf and we kind of like learned off each other. Um, and that continued for 10, 12 years now that We've been teaching, we've been learning, continuously learning. Glenn lives now over in Nazare and he's always out in Nazare doing water safety with the lads over there. Um, and I'm over here with the Irish Trail Surf Rescue Club and we kind of expe- uh, kind of went off to like not just looking after surfers, looking after the communities around beaches by putting defibrillators in, by teaching the local swim groups, by teaching and equipping the jet skis to show people what they can actually do. Like they are one robust bit of equipment when you know what you're doing on them. Like, um, and still to this day, there's no professional organization here that use jet skis as a rescue tool properly, um, which I'm trying to change at the moment. We're developing a course with a friend of mine um, to, for swift water rescue and uh, beach lifeguards to, to do the course and, and to better themselves mm-hmm. in equipment. So yeah, that's, kind of and as I said I've gone to Nazareth to teach medical stuff all about drowning I've taught I, I teach wilderness medicine with um wilderness medicine Ireland and surfing medicines uh surfing doctors of Europe and surfing medical association all, all around America um so yeah it's 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 a learning thing as, as if you don't keep your hand in it you lose it so that's why I love teaching wilderness medicine because in Ireland, like on the West coast of Ireland, we do live in the wilderness. Like if you're, if you're lucky, you get an ambulance within a half an hour, 40 minutes. If you're unlucky, it's going to take a long time. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. My journey to the jet ski stuff, but as I said, it's continuous learning from the love of the water to rescue boats, to jet skis. And I'm always looking to new techniques. I'm not, as I said, lifeguarding I've seen just stay stagnant the way it is with nobody wanting to learn how to better it by using, like they don't even have rescue boats on the beaches, the rancias, they don't use them on the beaches for the lifeguards. So it's, it's as I said, they're employed by the county council, which is just there to put basic life savers on the beach, use the board, off you go. They're not looking at spending more money on education, like in America or Hawaii, where you have professional services that do that, they progress the service by training up their staff to a high level. So yeah, my my end goal is to try and try and educate and 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 educate for free. Like as I said, a lot of my time is spent educating about drowning, uh, the use of defibrillators, community defibrillators. Like there, it's simple stuff it's like pushy pushy blowy blowy push the button like anybody use it like let's let's take away the whole the the 
people trying to make it look harder than it is, it's not that hard. You put two pads, you press a button, it'll tell you what to do. Same with pushing on somebody's chest. Yes, there is a, a little knack to it, but once you learn it, you will learn it. And same with the breathing. So, yeah, um, it's all about just getting out there. And as, as I said, and I heard you, Jason, like the back of my van has, it's like an ambulance. It has a defib, it has oxygen, it has everything. As a, you're only as good as the stuff you, that you use. It has fins, it has highline gear, it has rope, just in case I ever need it. And like, I have used it. I've used defibs out of the back of the van um, a number of occasions because I was the nearest person there. Um, but as I said, I, I feel if I'm there and I don't have the right equipment, I'm useless to an extent. I can do exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm taught to do in that situation. But if I don't have my trauma kit or my other gear, I, I, I'd feel bad that I couldn't, have made, I couldn't have made more of a difference, if you understand what I mean. No, I do. And it's funny because a common theme again is, you know, when, when you have seen something that's better. So for example, through your surfing, through your waterman, you realize, well, what an incredible life-saving tool for the beach. And, you know, again, it's that kind of bare minimum that we see a lot. You know, it, it, we've always been fine. Well, that doesn't mean that it's safe. It just means you got away with it up to this point. But it takes humility too. It takes you have to be humble and go. Well, look, just because we always did it this way doesn't mean there's a better way of doing it. There isn't a better way of doing it. And it's an interesting perspective that you had. And we we chatted about this before we start recording. And one of the things that drives me crazy is the the uh, kind of resistance to progress to innovation in the fire service here. And the one symbol that I talk about a lot is the, our fire helmets. So, you know, I got to start off and I got a kind of tortoise shell, same as you guys used to have. Then I went out west for a few years and had the California helmet, a lot lighter because it doubles up as a, a wildland helmet. Really, really love that helmet. And then came back to the East Coast, ended up with an even bigger, you know, like leather helmet or, or you know, mock-up leather helmet. I was catching that damn thing all over the place. You look up, it falls off your head. Anytime you have an extrication or something, you're taking it off immediately, throwing it on top of the car. And to me, the European helmet is progress. And I say, you know, the Navy SEALs don't wear tin helmets anymore. You know, they have the latest gear. Um, you guys had a very unique perspective of actually switching from the turtle shell helmet to the European helmet a few years ago. So here you are. An extensive lifeguard background, extensive fire background, extensive medic background. You do all the special operations. So through your own eyes, tell me about your perspective of that helmet change. It's a game changer, 100%. Like I loved helmets when they started because it made you look like a proper firefighter. Yeah, a visor in the front that did very little except protect you from something hitting you in the face. Um to and our fire gear tunics and our, our, our turnout gear to gear that you sweat a little bit more but you can be basically standing in the fire and not feeling it proper heat resistant fire gear with a helmet that encompasses your whole head and people say oh you can't hear you can hear perfect you can hear everything um you have a visor with a heat resistance. So you go to a really hot fire. The minute you pull that visor, you don't feel that heat at all hitting your face. 
You can put out the bonfire. You can put out anything. Um, you go to Norte. You're not fumbling around looking for a pair of goggles to put on. There's inbuilt visor that pulls down from the inside of the helmet. Um, the helmet is uh, personally adjusted to your own head. Um, when you go to a fire and you're putting a BA set, you just have to loosen a strap at the back or a, a toggle at the back. Um, your comms, uh, your communications for a BA slips into the side of it. So you have comms. Um, hands down is the best thing that we uh, that has developed in the fire service in Ireland that I since I've been in it 18 years. So um, just the overall protection of your head, like it's massive. Like, and the built-in lights that you have on it. Like, how many times are you in there? You're you're fumbling around to get your torch. Where this one has two built-in lights on the side. If you, especially when you're in the EMS side of it, you go to a proper car crash down a country road, or you're going to um, a cardiac rest in the middle of a park, and you're there helping the paramedics. You can put the helmet on. You can turn on the lights, and you're free of hands. That to, to you're looking and you're visualizing what you can work with with the lights on um yeah best thing i've ever that, that has ever changed with us especially the fire gear as well that it went from black gear to creamy colored gear and we're all like ah oh, sure what's what's that gonna uh what the difference is that gonna make when you go to a car fire when you go to any big fire you come back you can see the dirt you can see the soot you can see the toxic stuff that's on your turnout gear so the officer straight away be like, change your gear. And it's a visual thing. Like you, like back in the day, it was like the, the, how, how dirty your helmet was or how dirty your fire gear was proved how much of a fireman you were. But now it's not. It's like it's proven back there. Like that's why firemen had are, are dying from cancer and tumors and everything like that. Whereas now it's been identified from you going in you're not like you don't want to be a smoke eater anymore. You don't want to be going in coughing your lung up every time you you, you take a breath inside there and then coming out. Um, and it's it's progressive. Like that's hundred percent what it is. It's progressive firefighting. It's learning about the the fire and the smoke and what's actually in the toxins that is in a car fire. It's like it's 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 brilliant. Like I have to say, it's the best thing that's happened to us in the last few years. Beautiful. But it's just, it's good to hear a perspective from someone who had both. I mean, a lot of newer British firefighters, that's all they've known. So they don't have that to compare it to. You know, I've, I've had three different helmets, but what nauseates me is, you know, there's, there's a group of people that actually, you know, make fun of the European helmet over my dead body. Well, it's better. So that means (laughs) that basically you're more worried about how you look than your ability to facilitate a rescue. That your vanity is more important than your ability to save. That's basically it. People don't want to hear it. Well, we're leatherheads. Well, yeah, awesome. Put your leather hel- helmet on your fucking office wall. Tell your kids about that. That's what you used to wear. And go to something that actually makes you even better at facilitating a rescue. They make you make great uh, flower pots. That's why I have my my, my <laughs> old lace flower pots. But I, but I said, how many times were you at a fire when you look up and your chin strap wasn't on properly and the helmet comes off, or you look down? the helmet comes off like with the old helmets like so many times like and you're, you're the back of your neck wasn't protected there was so many things wrong with that helmet and still are wrong with it like in america that will you, you see but you have to be open to change as i said everything needs to be analyzed management need to be looking scrutinizing every bit 
how they can make it better. And never stop doing that. Never, ever stop identifying problems and looking at new ways of developing things. It's like every technology is changing. Um, like, what else do we get there recently? Uh, thermal imaging cameras. Holy shit. <laughs> you go into a house and you're like, oh, I can fucking see something. I can actually do things. Like, we only got them on a couple of years ago. It's like, what did we ever do before these? Um, yeah. So, like, that's what I, I would advise. Never put your head down. Always be open to change. Like, the change could be bad, but identify it. Find the reasons. Change. Identify the problems. And then go back to the people and say, like, we changed. We tried it. It's not working. We need to change again or go back to the way it was working for us. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, backboards are, ba- excuse me, backboards are a perfect example of the wrong innovation. You know, I mean, we, we now know that there was no science behind them. We know that they made most people worse, you know, so, but again, we still use them because we don't want to change. Well, instead of just saying, look, the science is wrong. This is stupid. Use a C collar when there's, you know, precautions or use an completely encompassing board like a PD, PD board. But the sliding all over a backboard in an ambulance as we go around corners is insanity. We strap the head and the rest of the body can move where it wants to go. Exactly. So it's exactly. crazy. Like um, we've gone to combi boards now, which are, it's great. Do you use them, combi boards? Uh, uh, so it's I, like, I think we have a, them called a Miller board. So they have the Velcro on all the limbs? No, no, it's a scoop stretcher basically, but it's spinally rated. So you don't have to log roll the person anymore. So basically you scoop them. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a game changer. So it's like if you go on a spinal board, the doctor will always make you do a log roll to check their back. But with a, a, um, a scoop stretcher, there's actually a gap down the middle. So they can actually, so if you're assessing the patient, you can actually look at their back underneath, just lift the, the, the board up and look at it. Um, yeah, it's a game changer for us as well. So spinal boards are only on the ETs. So if we're using them in conjunction with SCEDs or anything like that, so you need a rigid backboard for the, for the extraction. Um, but yeah, we've gone to um, combi boards. So it, it's spinally rated as well. But um, even the understanding of spinal injury is like, I, I say this for, and, and Jason touched on it, it's like people, the minute an accident happens in the water, it's like, oh, spinal precautions. I was like, but the person isn't breathing. Fuck the spinal injury. Manages airway. And like I had, me and Jason used to have great chats over that. I was like, man, I see your lifeguards just grabbing the person. And like the thing is like, it's all on video these days. So I'm looking at them and, and I see them Bondi rescues. Uh, they paddled out and they grabbed the person and the person's face down in the water and they put them on their board or their, the, on the bodyboard or thing. And the, per, the patient's, Face is still in the water for the whole rescue, the whole way in. And I'm going, what are you fucking doing? I was like, that person was drowning and he continued to drown the whole way in. And then he's just jumping in the chest because he's in cardiac arrest because he didn't bother turning his head over and getting his head out of the water. He probably would have taken, he would have taken a breath. If you blow, like in free diving, if you blow across their face, it'll activate them to breathe again. It's simple things like that. And Jason he was like, oh, yeah, 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 I must try that. And he's tried it. And he says, yeah. And he said it. The minute I turned them over, they took took a breath. Or it took two or three uh, um, blow, blowing across their face or doing something, like getting them up and shaking them that they started to breathe again automatically. So, 
like when I was over in 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 Hawaii, I was teaching with a, a group called Bragg Big Wave, Wave Risk Assessment Group, and I was in there there learning, and there was a teacher there, Patricia, and she was teaching CPR, and uh, it was interesting because I was brought over because I was they wanted to to show everyone what the Irish Toast Surf Rescue was doing and the education we were doing. And I had a good friend, Andrew Smith, who worked for uh, Lifeguards Without Border. He's down in Florida there. Um, and we used to get into big discussions about drowning and uh, how it is around the world, how it's uh, uh, viewed. And this lady over in, uh, in, in Hawaii was teaching every surfer to do CPR only. And I was like, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I was like, I sit in on our course and I listen to her reasoning for it before I ask her. Oh, so why aren't you doing breaths first? Like American Heart Foundation is three breaths first. European Resuscitation Council is five breaths first. Why are you teaching CPR only? And we went through this this whole conversation, and she was one of these. I knew I wasn't going to get through to her. I, I, and it was basically, she said, oh, well, these surfers are going to be flown in and they'll have Red Bull in their system. They'll have paddled and they'll be really tired and they'll be in cardiac arrest. I said, not every drowning is a cardiac arrest. I said, so CPR isn't the the, the, the way around us. It's breaths and breaths will be 90% efficient for a drowning if you get there quick enough. Nope, nope, nope. And it was just funny to see that she wasn't open for discussion. She didn't come from a, a water background. She came from inland teaching these uh, surf or uh, community schools. She was like, oh, I've this many people saved from doing CPR only on children that have been dragged out of, the, out of pools and stuff. And I, I didn't have the heart to say, well, how many died because of that? That it, it, it won't be noted how many people died due to not giving breaths, but you're you're counting the ones that were saved that were probably not in cardiac arrest, but they just came around because you were jumping on their chest. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting view around the world. Like you have experts in the field of drowning, but then you have people teaching it wrong and not listening to the experts that have spent their whole life investigating drowning, done, uh, done so much research on it and you have people over organizations saying no 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 we're not we're not going to listen to him this is what i think is the best and it's 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 heart, it's heartbreaking because people are dying because of it yeah no it was the same with the bvm it's like a little education will make a massive difference but they don't want to pay for that education that or teach the person like to use a bvm in ireland you're supposed to be an ef4 advanced which is emergency first responder it's a two-day course that's all it is to use oxygen and a bvm so when you get trained as a lifeguard you're shown a bvm you're not trained properly how to use it there's no medical training you're you're taught first aid but you don't get a certificate out of it you're not trained properly so it's 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 really weird the way it's taught here compared to America or and that's they'll claim they're the best in the world in Ireland but they're not they're so far behind everybody and they're not willing to they they have committees how to progress life saving or or lifeguards but they don't have any current lifeguards on that committee 
you've guys in their 40s and 50s that lifeguarded for 30 years ago not listening to the people that actually use bvms every day or lifeguards that are on the beaches every day listening to their complaints they're just making up their rules the way they would see it happening so it's pretty pretty hard to get the point across that lifeguards are having this problem will you identify it it's like you go around ireland not one lifeguard station is similar you'll have all the councils putting equipment different equipment into different lifeguards there's not one like irish water safety ireland should have a prerequisite for every lifeguard station in ireland so we if i walk into a lifeguard station in dublin it has the same medical gear same C, same defib same pr- procedures for board rescue same boards where they don't some places in in ireland you go and they won't even have a defibrillator on the beach which is madness no lifeguard station in ireland has oxygen they don't use it it's mental and they're lifeguards and the one thing they're going to deal with is a drowning so why would they not have oxygen to do a two-day course two to three day course and they could be trained and using it because the council their employer doesn't want to pay for that training, that storage of that equipment. So, well, you, you said a phrase. I think this this should ring alarm bells to everyone. Anytime someone tells you that your organization is the best in the world, your country is the best in the world, that means that you know you're not, because there's no humility in that. Again, you know there are there are different people from different walks of life and different organizations doing things phenomenally around the globe. And a humble country, a humble profession goes, Norway, love this idea. Finland, this is amazing. South Africa, wow, let's take that from you. But when you say you're the greatest in the world, you basically put a brick wall around progress. Exactly. And and, and like I'm working on a, a jet ski course at the moment, uh, like uh, operators course. And I've talked to my friends in Australia. I've talked to my friends in Hawaii, to Jason, to their jet ski guys, the guys in um, in, in Florida, in California. And I'm looking at all that. I'm talking to Sean with K38. And I'm, I'm not trying to rob anything off him. I'm just trying to see what works best in my situation in, in Ireland. It's like if I go to Nazare, I'm not using the same techniques I'm using in, in Moloch Moor on the west coast of Ireland. It's, it, it, you use different techniques in different situations, and that's what needs to be trained. It's not you train a lifeguard to be just a lifeguard. A lifeguard on the beach is completely different to a lifeguard in a pool. And a lifeguard on a beach on the east coast of Ireland is completely different to the lifeguard on the west coast of Ireland. So you have to be trained to the situation that you're, you're dealing with. And that is lost completely in a lot of organizations. Like I'm 100% give my training track record to somebody and say, right, scrutinize that please for me and come back with, and, and I don't want you to come back and say, yeah, I think it's great. It's like, no, I want to see you saying, this is good, but I t- what do you think is this idea? Because then I'm open to, oh, that actually makes sense. That's a great idea. Thanks for that. And that's what, it, like, that's why, when I came into like the wilderness medicine teaching, I knew about drowning, but I didn't know a lot about it. Then I talked to Andrew Smith from Lifeguard Without Borders and I was blown away. What, and he's a doctor. So he was going into the whole alveolus, like going so deep inside. And I was like, just getting lost in his knowledge, talking about Spielman and his research into it. Um, and then like 
it's amazing. You know, like even the cold water submersion over in England, like the the, the research that they've gone, um, Dr. Tipton over there, he's gone so deep into cold water submersion, uh, cold water drowning. It's just phenomenal. The, the deeper you go, the more you realize how stupid you are. Uh, do, do you know that saying that the people that think they know what they're doing and are confident are the people that I'm afraid to work with? Like oh, I, absolutely. If, I'm a, if I go out in an ambulance, I'm looking at my 12 leads and I'm going, oh God, I hope I don't get this, I hope I don't get that. And you'd kind of realize if you go deep into 12 lead that how little you know about the heart and the, the, the rhythms that can be thrown at you. And it's the same with drowning. It's the same with anaphylaxis. It's the same with every, the deeper you go, the real, like you learned this 12 years ago or 13 years ago. And you realize, like I listened to the resource, there's another podcast, the resource rooms that it's done by, um, a doctor, a paramedic and a, uh, another guy, I don't know. I'll be embarrassed now by, by saying, but they go into drowning, they go, they research everything from a pre-hospital to hospital standard and the uh, papers of the month that they deal with, like they'll go into endotracheal tube, they go into everything around COVID, around papers that are published um, by SDA Trim around the world and it's just so refreshing to listen to it and go, I thought that, like, why isn't, why aren't paramedics allowed to give TXA over here? Or why can't we do this? Why are we allowed to give Pentrox to five-year-olds in Ireland, but in England, they're not allowed to give that. It's like, and then you research it and you go, oh, oh, we can do that because they're allowing us to do for this reason, for educational reason. And and it's mad. It's like, the more you look into it, the more you realize, I don't know that much. And, and I learned that on the jet ski. It was like, I thought I was brilliant in Ireland on jet skis and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm good. But then I went to Nazare and holy shit, it's a different ball game altogether. If you want to class yourself as a, a jet ski operator, go to Nazare, go to the inside and see how you fare up inside there. By holy God, there's so much water moving from every angle that you have to be on your A game to, to survive in there. It's amazing. So yeah. Sorry, rant, rant over. <laughs> no, I love rants. This is a, a safe space for rants. <laughs> um, did you say that the podcast is called the Resus Rooms or the Resource Rooms? Resus, Resus Rooms. Resus, okay. Yeah, I want to make sure I got is. that right because that sounds like a great Resource. one. Yeah, it is brilliant. Like I, as I said, I do three hours up and down to Dublin for my shift and I get zoned out by listening to the Blind Boy podcast and to the Resource Rooms. And resource rooms is like once, maybe twice a month. They have papers of the month every month, and then they have they specialize in like resource. Um, they they, they specialize in maternity and childbirth there recently, and they brought a paramedic midwife in to do the talk on it, and it's just it'll blow your mind. Even the doctors and the paramedics are going, Jesus, I've I, I, I never knew that. I haven't done maternity in a long time, and even I was like, oh shit, I forgot all about that. Um, it's it's. It's, as I said, if you're not continuously listening and learning, you shouldn't be in the profession that you're in. I said, you should be always continuously learning and just refreshing. Like get the ropes out, jump in the water, get used to it. And that one bit of equipment that you're afraid to use, go out by yourself, get back used to Because you never know when you go to a, a, a serious case and they turn to you as the rescuer, as a rope rescuer and say, all right, Pete, it's up to you. And you're standing there. The officers are standing at you and going, all right, 
I don't want to be there going, okay, that person died because I wasn't able to type this knot or I couldn't extract them from that situation, whereas you should have been able to. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a perfect place to transition to some closing questions. So much for people to kind of absorb. Um, so the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed or completely unrelated. One book that I read and loved it was The Checklist Manifesto. It's written by a, either a doctor or an engineer. And it basically goes down like, you know, literally your life was revolved around a checklist. When you went in at six o'clock, you checked your truck off. There was a check off and away you go. Engineers, doctors. It is a book that will change your life. It'll re- You will realize why checklists were brought in. Um, I won't go too deep into it, but uh, yeah, read that book. It is a game changer. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. What about a film and or a documentary? Oh, film-wise, Big Wednesday, best movie ever. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It'll change your life. Uh, that's from a surfing uh, background. Um, documentary. Um, oh, I don't know. There's a new one in. See, see, see something. Seaspiracy. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I have watched a lot of people talk, friends of mine that were um, uh, are marine biologists, and they've said, yeah, it's, it is a game changer, but 10 years ago this happened. This, this was identified 10 years. It's not something new that's been wrecking our world. It's been going on for 10 umpteen years. So, yeah, that, I want to watch that. Um, but, no, yeah... I'm more of a um, a series, Yellowstone, love that. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Kevin Costner, amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what blew me away about Seaspiracy, and obviously you know, every documentary, you know, you just enter it knowing there's always going to be a slant. I mean, every all of us have an agenda. You know, some's good, some not so good. But, um, but yeah, understanding that so much of the waste in the ocean comes from, you know, the industrial fishing, that there's a lot of fishing, basically poaching from other countries' land. You know, we talk about the Somali pirates coming out of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of very human elements and yet another angle for us to look at the mass production of some of this food and go, do we need to eat as much of, you know, food X? Or, you know, can we save our environment and maybe, you know, gate back a little bit in our consumption? But you can, you can like, uh, no, I'm not going to go down a big massive rant. Is, but one of the boys was sitting me today beside me in in the the mess room, and he was someone mentioned it, and then he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, we've been eating a lot of fish recently, and now it, it's kind of put me off eating fish." And I was like, "Well, was that like the last documentary you watched about eating meat, and that put you off eating meat?" And the same with avocados and uh, palm oil. It's like everything has is being overproduced. Just to feed us, whereas you go back to our your father's and mother's time and my mother's time and before that, you produce your own food a lot of the time, and I think that's gone. It's like I have a polyton now and I'm growing veg, and like I'm still buying veg from the shop and we'll still eat meat and but minimal. I'll go out in the jet ski during the summer and we'll get catch fish. I'll catch the fish myself. Like one of my friends, Seamus, he was he's a, a hunter gatherer and he like for. I think it was for a year he decided I'm only eating meat that I catch. So he'd shoot the deer, eat it, 
But then you have people saying, oh, you shouldn't be shooting eat, shooting deer. It's like, well, he's eating everything he catches. He go off and he catch the, the lobster and he caps the fish and he eats all that. And like, he's self-sufficient. I think that's a great way. But then you have people at him for shooting deer and catching fish. It's like, well, how do you win this argument? You talk to a vegan, you talk to a pescatarian, you talk to a, yeah, a, a, a meat eater. Like they're all fighting their own battle against each other. Whereas just get on with your own life. Like religion, don't force it on anybody else. If you want to be who you want to be, just get on with it. I'm happy with my life. You should be happy with yours. Yeah. Well, I think, like you said, what is missing is exactly that. Like, you know, either growing it yourself or on a local farm, local fisherman. If you choose to eat meat, then yeah, hunt or, you know, be in some sort of consortium where, you know, you buy meat from local hunters. But the fact that we have, you know, especially here in the US, these just absolute mega farms where these animals are, you know, it's just, it's horrific animal cruelty. You know, that's not normal and they're full of, of, of antibiotics and hormones, which then is passed on to the consumer. There's vegetables are sprayed with chemicals that are passed on to the consumer. And then we wonder why we have, you know, an obesity epidemic, a cancer epidemic. So just going back, I mean, I, I talk about exactly what you just said. If we ate like a hundred years ago, again, another, another thing that will revolutionize this, you know, not only the, the, uh, US, but also the UK and Australia, but revolutionize our, our health. We've had our food quality taken from us and we've allowed them to take that knowledge that goes with it. So the more that we start being more self-sufficient, growing, supporting local farms, hunting, you know, fishing, whatever it is, but at a local scale, the less power we're going to give to these, you know, giant organizations that are literally destroying this world. Oh, 100%. And like you see new people, like I, I have a few friends that are like, they buy a farm and they do farming on it and they're like, oh, we're doing organic farming and oh, it's so new. And it's like, well, it's nothing new. Like, it's just something that your parents did. Your grandparents guarantee are, 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 are farming exactly the way you do it. But they're putting slants on it. They're like, this is the way, this is the new way to do it. It's like, it's not new. It's like, it's like, ah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. But it shows how brainwashed we were. Like, you know, you probably remember when we were younger, if someone ate organic food, they were a hippie. Like, oh, who wants yeah. who wants to eat food without chemicals in it? That's sprayed on with a level B hazmat suit. <laughs> and then we look back now, like, what the hell were we thinking to you know the the people that make the decisions to allow this to even be a thing in the first place? And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that actually came from um, surplus chemicals from World War Two. So you know, they just basically used it for that. So you know, taking back our food to where it used to be would be a huge, huge change. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And not mass produced like palm oil and all that kind of stuff, d d destroying the forests. Like, ah, that's another, that's another podcast. Today. <laughs> yeah. All right. One of the last closing questions. Um, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, yeah. Sean Adeleo. Do you know her? She's a, uh, she's, uh, the the owner of K38, which is, does all the jet ski rescue and education over in England, or not in England, she's in America. Um, she is a vast amount of experience with rescue crafts, um, training, fire service, military, all that kind of stuff. She is next level and she is so educated in 
marine law and uh, emergency response, she, um, any hurricanes or anything that goes on, uh, floodings, she always puts teams together to go down and help out. Um, yeah, she she is a very educated person in, in her field. Amazing. Um, also, Ben Abo, he's a doctor down in Florida. I've had Ben on, on the ben show. Oh, very good. Ben is a Ben. Ben's a, a, a really good guy. He came over once. A friend, a friend of his, got on to me and said, "Oh, my friend is over in Ireland there at a conference. Do you mind meeting up with him?" And and basically, I picked up Ben um, after work, and I I drove him home to Clare, and he stayed with me for a few days, and we hung out. Uh, legend of a guy. That's funny that a snake expert goes to Ireland for a conference. Oh, he's a snake in the in the grass anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah ben ben is a, a an amazing character um andrew smith from um, lifeguard without borders he's also a doctor in jacksonville he's a lifeguard uh a lifeguard instructor a lifeguard and doctor as well there so he is a vast amount of knowledge on drowning and expertise um Brilliant. i, I a lot I, I, I respect him a lot as well Brilliant. He's um, only two hours from me then if he's in Jacksonville. I'm actually going to be up there in a couple yeah. of weeks. Oh, man, look him up. Tell him I said he, oh, he is he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Um, um, Mary Showstark as well. Very interesting. She's a PA. She works for Oxford University. I think it's Oxford. Um, but she is a vast amount of information for disaster relief um, and education and uh, wilderness medicine teaching i'm blown away with what like every time i'm talking to her she comes up with a story like nearly dying on a plane or nearly uh being in the wrong place at the wrong time but the right person for it it's like you get her on and she is just the stories the, just the, the situations <laughs> she's been in i'm just like fuck it how are you still alive mary yeah <laughs> And she's down in Florida as well. She she goes from Florida between Florida and, and New York as well. But she um, she's worked with Ben. She, her and Ben went over to the Philippines. Uh, a trip I was supposed to go with to try and create a ambulance service basically over for them, um, because they were proven that people were dying rurally and they couldn't actually get people to hospital with definitive care. So yeah, they went over and did a little trip together. Well, Mary is an abundance of knowledge and information beautiful with well, some amazing names thank you yeah so yeah awesome all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you if they want to reach out what do you do to decompress ah uh, what do i do to lie in my van and just relax um when i'm up in dublin but when i'm down home my garden i love Getting into the garden, either building something for the kids for the future, like a treehouse or um, or plant, like la yesterday I planted 50 trees in the garden, um, thinking there was going to be, I'd have nowhere to put them, but they disappeared into the garden. And grow, growing veg in my polytunnel, like I love it. Um, yeah, I just love doing that. Um, that's kind of, I, I, I get immersed in that my garden because there's a future plan for my garden that my wife doesn't even see and I'd keep explaining it to her but she doesn't see it and I bought my house 13 years ago and it's halfway there 
but it's going to get there one of the days and that's my future um my future vision for for my land and that's my release my 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 way out of thinking about the fire brigade the sea the ocean and all that kind of stuff yeah that's my my way and playing with my kids yeah that's it beautiful yeah well, i think that's another thing that I, i've had a few people on here that talk about you know gardening and i think it's it's when we're in this fast-paced society that we're in now like nature doesn't care how much you want to hurry up it's going to grow the way it grows you know my uh my mother and um uh, stepdad they live in portugal as well in the algarve and it's very deserty there where they live and he is grown this oasis i mean you would think you're in the garden of eden and it's taken them years and years and years but the you know again the vision that he had for this garden and what it looks like now is just absolutely incredible yeah yeah now i have one more name for you right and you like this guy ryan webb he's um he was a firefighter paramedic up in what's the island above new york nantucket uh, yes, I think that is, yeah. So he was a, a firefighter paramedic out there, but he was on the mainland as well. But he's left that now to be, he's in the para, para rescue. He's okay. doing training to be a para rescuer at the moment. Well, Ryan is a very knowledgeable medical fire service. And Ryan is a good surfer, wanted to come over, surf big waves. And he's one of those cheeky young lads that got on to me on Instagram. He's like, Pete, can I come over? And you're a firefighter. I'm a firefighter. Can I come over and stay with you and surf? And I like, I'm just open. I was like, yeah, yeah, come on over. This is before I had a wife. And uh, he came over and stayed with me for a while and and uh, surfed with us. And uh, Ryan is a, a top class guy. Um, but been through a, like a lot and is just uh, an amazing human and he would be very worthwhile getting onto the show on the show yeah. Ryan Webb is names well thank you yeah. you gave me such a, a huge list and so many different you know backgrounds there so I'm going to have to work my way through that alright well then the, the very last question if people want to learn more about you if they want to reach out to you where are the best places online so on Instagram it's Pedro P-E-D-R-O Pedro 2468 and or just look up Peter Conroy and on Facebook, it's Peter Conroy. And I'm very open with all that. I've not got any closed accounts. Um, and if you want to look at our club, it's the Irish Toast Surf Rescue Club on Facebook um, or on, on um, Instagram as well. The Irish Toast Surf Rescue Club. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Peter, I want to say thank you so much, mate. It's It's been such a great conversation. We only just connected the other day through Jason. Um, but, uh, you know, another different another perspective. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's what I love about this. You know, we, I don't know if you yeah. have the same in Ireland, but a lot of our TV screens are adorned by people that really aren't doing a lot of good in the world, whether they're politicians or those influencers. influencers yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but then you have this conversation and I ask, uh, you know, brother firefighter in Ireland. Now you gave me all these names, including some people that I know, you know, you get this cross pollination when you have the humility to just, you know, start talking to each other and learning from each other. But, um, it's been amazing hearing your story. It's been amazing hearing, you know, that actually we think that we pioneered, you know, fire and EMS and actually Dublin was doing it about a hundred years before us. So I've been uh, educated on that too, but uh, thank well, don't you. For, don't hold me on that, right? I could be wrong as well. I'm going <laughs> to research it, but 
I know it's a long time. Yeah, let me know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've only been doing it in the US, I believe, to, since the 70s with the, with the earliest ones, Miami and I think LA. Oh, so, no, yeah. Way before you. Way before you did. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. I, I think you're pretty pretty confident in that. But but yeah, so just thank you for, you know, giving me your time and, and being so generous today and, and telling your story. Thank you very much, James. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you.